Some of the most invigorating activities that happen at the annual Unitarian Universal Association General Assembly, or the GA, around the social justice issues. Each year, the delegates from each congregation vote on actions of immediate witness, called AIWs, and on a statement of conscience. These are opportunities for UUs across the country to use their collective power to advance social, economic, and political concerns. But it is not a simple process, as you can imagine. It takes a lot of strategic organizing to get thousands of people from across the globe to agree on anything. Not only must we all decide on the, what is the most important issue to address, but we must also agree to make a public position on issues that can be very divisive. In 2016, one of the proposed actions of immediate witness at the General Assembly was that the UUA should divest any investments we had in the Caterpillar Company, which makes the construction machinery and equipment so many of us are familiar with. This was due to their participation in the destruction of homes and properties in Palestine. This proposal turned into a battle that few people might have anticipated. The fiscally conservative UUs felt this was an overreactive political proposal. Young adult UUs believed this action would show solidarity with Palestinians who were losing their homes and show resistance to the steady occupation of Palestine. And Jewish UUs felt this action came too close to anti-Israel and anti-Semitic support. Debate on this AIW was long, was dramatic, and it was emotional. We had to call in mediators from the outside. And when the final vote was called, the delegates voted 49% in support of the AIW and 51% against it. Cheers erupted from those who had opposed the AIW. And those who proposed it were demoralized not simply because of their loss, but because the whole process felt wrong. I was sitting in the conference hall with two colleagues who specialized in nonviolent non communication, and we turned to each other, disturbed by what we had just seen. We wondered, how can we feel good about a decision where nearly half the people in the room had their voices silenced? Was this really the practice of democracy? Couldn't we, a group of people committed to the high levels of the principles we promote, couldn't we expect something a bit more inclusive and sympathetic than the bitter results of a majority rules decision-making process? This experience has led me over the past seven years looking for ways we might do democracy different in more inclusive ways. I proposed exploring how democratic decision-making works in one of my, to one of my seminary teachers for one of our countering oppression classes. I was surprised when she immediately shot me down, saying consensus was a poor alternative. She said it took too much time to be a practical way to make decisions, and it could be co-opted by individual dissenters. Now, I have lived in intentional community for almost five years, and I know the difficulty of coming to consensus on anything 
It took us three years of debate on the color of the living room to be painted, <laughs> and we never came to a decision. Someone came in and painted it one day, and we don't know who it was. <laughs> Thank God. <laughs> but I wasn't thinking of either or. I wasn't thinking of consensus or majority rule. I was wondering if there could be something else. Surely, as our culture has evolved, so have our decision-making ways evolved and our ways of understanding how we're in community evolved. As I started wondering, I could expand it to include some of the other tools we rely on in our group decision-making, coming a lot from the corporate world. I noticed how we use organizational charts, creating those lines of decision-making and authority that establish a hierarchy. It makes it easy to understand to, and follow who is in charge of what. These organizational charts have become so standard that once we see the chart, we don't question who makes the most money and who has the most power in an organization. And the result is a great divide economically and socially between those at the top of our hierarchical charts and those at the bottom, even though we know, particularly these days, we know that those at the bottom are essential to the success of those at top. I also started looking at Robert's Rules of Order. My personal experience has involved watching this process countless times, a process that involves so many amendments, clarifications, procedural calls, and changes that it has left me bewildered. The result of it was that at the end I felt unable to participate in any significant way until the final vote was called. There is a growing awareness of the floors of Robert's Rules. Now, at 700 pages in length, they are too complicated, and they end up discouraging participation by anyone who may not be familiar with them. They're described as rigid, as ways to disrupt or disrail, derail meetings, and designed to keep certain people out of the process of making decisions. Recently, alternatives to Robert Rules have emerged, but even with them, there is some concern. It is well argued that following any set of rules or standards of conduct is comfortable and accessible only to people who choose those rules and standards. In other words, they may give a sense of control and order, but at the cost of excluding people who may not navigate the world in the same way. Other cultures, people who may be more neuroatypical, and those educated in different systems may not have learned to follow order and process in the same way. So I wonder if we shouldn't at least explore possible alternative formats to collective decision-making. The Reverend Renee Richler, who works for the UUA, writes these words. Most of our inherited governance models are mechanical and technical. They offer clear, lawyerly processes and clear lines of authority for decision-making. But human relationships and organizations are organic, living systems of interactions. Creative interchange does not appear upon demand, but it manifests when the humans involved are open, engaged, and connected. 
The evolution of humanity has been grounded in our ability to create, create mutual, cooperative community. It is only recently in human evolution that part of humanity has adopted coercive exploitation, extraction, colonization, and other antisocial behaviors. The peril to both humanity and the rest of the planet from this unsustainable social experiment is becoming frighteningly obvious. We need to transform these ways of thinking and help us develop new models that will move us away from both the hyper-individualism of pure democracy and the paternalism of hierarchies back toward the congregational practice of covenantal contemplative discernment. It's the end of her quote. The congregational practice of covenantal contemplative discernment. In 2019, the UUA's Commission on Institutional Change issued its report widening the circle of concern. The report urges us to understand how white supremacy is embedded in the very systems and culture of our UU institutions. And it creates a clarion call to us to question and reimagine how we restructure ourselves to create mutual, equitable, consensual, and effective faith communities. At Northlake, we have studied this report. Last year, each board member read it. And this year, our integrated justice team used it to identify how we can change our system so that we are more justice-oriented. We identified our democratic decision-making as a concern that needed deeper discernment. Unitarian Universalists have a passionate commitment to democracy, right? It's part of our religion. It's foundational to the way we gather. We believe it so strongly that our fifth principle specifically affirms the right of conscience and the use of democratic process within our congregations and in society at large. We have been and we remain strong advocates of free speech and of participation and governance with fair and equal access. But I propose to you that we have adopted governance and decision-making processes that may silence voices, limit access, and restrict participation to those who are not part of the dominant culture. We have inadvertently accepted ways of making decisions that uphold corporate practices without fully examining that we are in church, a place where we aspire to covenantal, contemplative decision-making. What would decision-making look like to us if we embrace the idea that love is at the center of all we do? As a faith community, we often say that love is the heart of who we are. As progressive thinkers, we call each other to act from a deep caring for all humans. These are the words of the social commentator and feminist theorist, Bell Hooks. <clears throat> they write, in this society, there is no powerful discourse on love emerging either from the politically progressive radicals or from the left. The absence of sustained focus on love in progressive circles arises from a collective failure to acknowledge the needs of the spirit and an overdetermined emphasis on material concerns. 
Without love, our efforts to liberate ourselves and our world community from oppression and exploitation are doomed. As long as we refuse to address fully the place of love in our struggles for liberation, we will not be able to create a culture of conversion where there's a mass turning away from an ethic of domination. The ability to acknowledge blind spots can emerge only as we expand our concern about politics of domination and our capacity to care about the oppression and exploitation of others. That's the end of her quote. We are the progressive voice that Bell Hooks talks about. And we are the church that calls us to a discourse on the needs of the spirit and the demands of love. We are a church. We live in covenant with each other. This means we have agreed on how we will be together as individuals treating each other with love and as a community living in honest, respectful, and loving relationship. We are not a corporation. We are a church. How we do the work of the church is not secondary. It is foundational to how we do the work of justice and love in the world. In order to radically love this world, in order to really be religious progressives, we need to be willing to challenge our assumptions about what is normal. We need to be willing to sit with discomfort, to be unsettled for periods of time as we open ourselves to change. And that's hard. That's hard. That as we do the work of changing systems of oppression, we need to realize that these have been comfortable to only some of us. I close with the beginning of a prayer that comes to us from our founding ministers. It says, love is the doctrine of this church. The quest for truth is its sacrament. Let us continue the work of having love guide us. Blessed be.